Growing up, there weren't many times where I didn't feel like I fit in, which is kind of surprising given that I'm the New Zealand-born daughter of immigrant parents. There is one time that does spring to mind, though. I'd moved schools from one in South Auckland, quite a poor area, to one in East Auckland, which is quite a rich area. The school felt big and metallic and intimidating. The kids didn't make starting at a new school any easier. It was 2003 and there was a massive influx of immigrants, particularly from Asia to the suburb. I'd never been around so many other Asian people in my life. I remember that it took me ages to make any friends and I just assumed no one wanted to talk to me because they thought I couldn't speak English. I don't know. The social norms and trends at this new school were totally foreign to me. Like girls, mainly cool girls, would cut out pictures from tween magazines like Girlfriend and Cleo and stick them on the covers of the exercise books. It was the dumb thing if you wanted to be cool and fit in. In my old school, kids could barely afford books, let alone magazines. It was things like this that made me feel like a real outsider. How does it feel though, when it's not the kids in your class that you don't fit in with, but kids from the same ethnic background as you? People that speak the same language, eat the same food, have the same skin color as you. To investigate, we listen to three stories of people trying to navigate their cultural identities and figure out what it means to them. And I'm just like, honestly, I just don't give a shit. Like, I don't care, but I just want to be included. So desperately want us to be included. From my Samoan family, I was sort of perceived as a spoiled white kid. I just felt so ugly and weird compared to all of these other kids. I'm Novia Ning, this is Can You Repeat That? And today we look at feeling comfortable in your own skin. For people of colour, the question, where are you from, is complicated. This is how June Lee answers the question. I'm currently living in Mount Eden. If you really press me from where I'm from, I'd say, oh, I used to live in Tiatatu. If you really press me for where I'm from, then I'd say, oh, I was born in South Korea. Is that what you mean? And that's usually what people mean. June is a high school teacher in training who likes to discuss social and education reform and lift weights at the gym. She also has a black belt in Taekwondo. June's family immigrated to New Zealand in late 1994 when she was six and her brother was two. We settled in Auckland and we first like lived in St. Hallie's for a while and then we found a more permanent home way out in um, Tiatatu South. And that's where we kind of grew up for the majority of the time. The Korean population was like significantly smaller than it is now. You could just count the number of things like Korean churches kind of on one hand. June's family arrived at one of the peaks of South Korean immigration to New Zealand. According to the 1996 census, the number of Koreans in New Zealand had quadrupled since the last census. On the weekend, her family would do Korean community things. On Sunday, they had church, and on Saturdays, they had Hangyul Hagyo, Korean school. You would expect that kids at Korean school were just like June and her brother, immigrant kids adjusting to growing up in a country that was different from the one they knew. Except they weren't. The environment was so different because a lot of those kids were still much more Korean in comparison to us, even back then. And um, like we started going there probably during like intermediate and it was very, it was just kind of almost just a real experience. We're supposed to be there to learn the language, but a lot of the kids were very clicky in that they all went to school together. They went to Hangakyo together on Saturday and they went to church on Sunday. So they already had their established cliques and like I kind of never really fit in anywhere in those places. 
Fitting in, from June's point of view, was down to a few things. But one big factor was the suburb her family had moved to. Well, one of the biggest differences is that we lived in West Auckland. We lived in Te Aru South. The area that we lived in was like full of like Pacific Island and like Māori and like various other Pākehā kids. And so it was a very multicultural environment in that respect. Whereas a lot of the other Korean people had settled in places like Glenfield or Northcote and places like that where there was already established Korean communities. I don't know what my parents' rationale was, like not settling in one of those areas. Um, but that small regional gap became a huge, almost like generational gap in a way. This gap manifested itself in the same ways it does with any generational gap. The clothes, the music, the things. And if you didn't have the right things, you weren't part of the crowd. People had, you know, those giant satellite dishes and people were still watching like Korean dramas and Korean soaps and things like that. They were still in touch with Korean pop culture and Korean news in a much more salient way than we ever were. And so they were aware of things like K-pop bands. Like there was, back then, it was like the first emergence of like K-pop as well. Like there was bands called like H.O.T. and S.E.S. They're like the very, they're the Backstreet Boys and like the All Saints and Spice Girls of like the way back when. <laughs> and they were aware of it. And those kids were way hyped up about it. And like, I pretended to be, I feigned interest in a lot of those things to kind of try to get along with all the other girls that were like in my classrooms. Like literally, I was just like, oh yeah, I totally love Kung Ta. And I'm just like, honestly, I just don't give a shit. Like, I don't care, but I just want to be included. So desperately wanted to be included. And like, girls had these like posters and they had things like diaries. Like diaries were really huge things, like these Korean style diaries that were really pretty. And I remember begging and begging my parents, like anytime they went away or they knew somebody that went away, like, can I please have a diary? I had no idea what I was going to do with my diary. It didn't really matter. All I was probably going to do is like write somebody's phone number and like glittery gel pen in it. Um, but that didn't matter. These things, the fact that I didn't have these things like marked me very clearly as like not being part of it. And when I had these things temporarily, I felt really included. And I was just like, look, I've got one of these. I am part of you. But obviously that doesn't mark you as like being part of the in-group, which is real sad. But that was the reality of it is that like these kids had each other and they had things and I did not. And therefore I was not. She did not, and therefore was not. Growing up in this in-between of being both Korean, but also not Korean enough, June came to realise that she was never going to fit in with this group. This didn't change when she went to high school in an area with a larger Korean population. Despite opportunities to participate in Korean cultural activities, June chose not to. There were things like Korean Cultural Club, and I saw things like fan dance for the first time. Having said that, though, like I was never included enough into those kind of cultural things like I didn't want to necessarily be because I didn't feel like I felt I never felt like I fit in in the first place I already felt that having gone to Korean school because I didn't fit in there so I was like my rationale was why would I fit into Korean groups here at school anyway although having said that like I still had um I had my friends that like Korean girls that I knew that also went to church with us and so I'd see them pretty much every day and then at church as well and and then at university, I think I didn't, obviously, like, I didn't have to engage with it as much because I could just do whatever kind of extracurricular activities that I wanted. But it was funny because through things, the, the extracurricular activities that I did, I met other Korean people who were, incidentally, just happened to be interested in things that I was interested in. And then, therefore, I started forming more kind of organic relationships with other Korean New Zealanders. And I found that I also was kind of friends with other Korean New Zealanders who were kind of also slightly fringy, like... Like they didn't, they didn't necessarily always fit in and that's kind of where we kind of felt similarly and also we kind of shared an interest in kind of exploring our Koreanness. I don't know if I ever try to like fit in. I don't think it was possible for us because we didn't wear the right clothes. We didn't have the right clothes. We didn't have the right clothes because my mom is very 
frugal in that respect like because because we were so financially tight for a while like my parents really had to scratch our way into like into financial comfort it was really a frivolous consideration back then and so things like worrying about yeah what type of clothes you're wearing it, it did seem like really silly so uh, there was never attempts to try to be included i just i never thought that i never saw that as a possibility i think and that I would never transform myself to like, be like one of those girls. People ask me, I'd be like, I'm a Korean New Zealander. They're like, you're a Kiwi? And I'm like, yeah, I suppose you could call me that. But like, Kiwi is like its own thing. And I'm not a Kiwi in that respect. And that I'm a really terrible Kiwi in that I don't give a fuck about rugby. I don't give a fuck about cricket. I don't care who knows it. Like, and I don't do banter. I don't do banter. I don't give a fuck about the cricket. I don't give a fuck about the rugby. And John Key can go fuck himself. There, I said it. Navigating cultural belonging for people like June, who grew up in the in-between of being a new immigrant and a local, has its challenges. Challenges similar to those with mixed heritage. According to the 2013 census, just 11.2% of the population identified as being from more than one ethnic group. Notably though, that number increases to 22.8%, almost a quarter for children under 14. The future of New Zealand is mixed race. But what does coming from a mixed race background actually mean in real life? I'm going to get pretty real on how it was for as a kid. So this is basically how it felt on both ends. So growing up, from my Samoan family, I was sort of perceived as a spoiled white kid. Braddy, white, thinks he's better than the world. And I just couldn't understand where this was coming from. This is your perception. Like, this is in your head. This isn't what's happening. This isn't the reality of the situation. And then on the flip side, like, my white cousins would look at me like a minority and they would treat me like an idiot almost. You know, they'd assume the worst in me, assume that I was capable of, like, robbing them or something. And then they would be so condescending. They would just really talk to me like I was thick, like a thick coconut. That was, like, really how they talked to me. I just couldn't comprehend, like, why are you talking to me? Like, I'm stupid. Like... I get what you're saying. That's Scott Hooks. Scott has one of those faces. You know, he could pass for being from Iraq just as easily as he could pass for being from Colombia. I'm, I guess, what you would call a second generation immigrant, but I'm also a half caste. So my dad's a Kiwi, like a European Kiwi, born and raised in New Zealand. Um, and my mum is Samoan and she moved over when she was eight years old, I think. Scott comes from a family of two cultural identities. Those who also fall into this category understand how difficult it is to balance the two. How do you fit in when you are not fully one, but also not fully the other? When Scott was young, his Samoan grandparents lived with his family, and he grew up being close to his cousins on his Samoan side. It was intense. It was like, everyone's in everyone's business. Everyone's about the family. Things go down, we have to have big meetings about it. The whole family has to come over. And even for my dad, it was hard to almost adapt to that, you know. I guess I didn't grow up with my Kiwi side because that's just how it was. But I grew up intensely with my Samoan side. I just felt I identified more as a Samoan. I'm more Samoan. Like if you would ask me as a kid, what are you? I'd just say Samoan, just Samoan. Because I just didn't believe white was a thing almost. Or like it was something you identified with as a culture because you know, someone is very specific. You don't say, 
I'm Polynesian, you go, I'm Samoan, or I'm Tongan, or I'm Cook Island, but some white people do, but not all will walk around going, I'm Irish, or I'm French, or I'm of this descent, because in actual fact, what they know of their history only dates back to the country they're from, like New Zealand. Even though Scott self-identified as Samoan, it didn't stop people from saying otherwise. In addition to the cultural barriers, class seemed to play a big part in his family's othering of him and his sister. As a kid, I really identified as being Samoan, but that didn't mean I didn't feel sort of excluded from that culture, because to be honest, I don't know why, but my Samoan culture, or my family, or like a lot of the Samoans I met growing up, sort of did make a point to make me understand I wasn't the same, that I didn't come from the same walk of life. And I think one thing that didn't help that was also my upbringing, because I didn't necessarily grow up, I don't know, like Southside. I mean, I did grow up in Southside, but I didn't necessarily grow up in the hood or whatever, like the rest of my family were kept quite separate from that life. Then they really would make a point to be like, well, you're not someone, and I could never understand how class, how money, how anything would have determined what is your ethnicity or your culture. They would make a point to make me feel extra white. And even my sister, we just didn't belong. You go to a lot of events, so like funerals, reunions. We couldn't speak Samoan, so we were definitely left out. If we don't understand a certain custom, like a certain way things are, because there's a lot of customs in our culture, you know, little things that we just weren't raised with, like personally, you can't blame us for not being raised that way. Like if we didn't understand it, oh man, you know, the shit we got for it, you know, people would just kind of be like, oh, like, oh, you should know better. You should know better. Of course, it wasn't just Scott and his sister that would be attacked for not being Samoan enough. Their mum, who had moved from humble beginnings to middle class, was seen by her family to have lost her traditional values. In your Samoan side, everyone is just so involved in the family. Like, I can't tell a single person, not even a cousin, sometimes not even my sister, that I trust what's going on, a secret going on in my life, because a week later, my grandmother will know, and my cousins will know, and my aunties will know, and they all want to know if I'm okay, or they all have their opinion. And so it was like that when my mum, when shit would go down and we just weren't Samoan enough, you know. There was a time like I even had a conversation with one of my cousins. I don't know, this was her term and it's just such a stupid term. Like, so you know what balangi means? It means like white, like white person. Like, this was the term she coined. Your mum is being balangi arise. Do you know she's being like made to be more white? Because we'd moved to Botany at that point, we're living in the suburbs. So they would just make these really nasty comments on how white my mum is becoming. And these comments weren't coming from, oh, she's lost her values and her traditions. It wasn't that because the people saying it had lost their values and traditions. My own cousins are just as white as us, even if their parents are both Samoan. This is what I'm talking about, the whole South Auckland view. Like, you didn't grow up in the struggle. That's why you're white. Really? So the struggle is what makes... Samoan Samoans. No, 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 no. Because she's originally from Otara and she's originally from the struggle, you know? My dad's the same. He's from Otara. He's from the struggle. They both did well for themselves. They both got out of that. Suddenly my mum's whitening up because she wants to drive a, a nice car, maybe. So what if she goes for branch? Branch is good. Like, who doesn't like branch? No. Despite the adversity from his family, Scott remained steadfast, 
and his adherence to who he was. It made me more determined to be more Samoan, to really try and understand my culture. At high school, he did things like join Samoan group and did what he could to learn about and participate in his culture. The big milestone for him came when he was 17. He was just laying in bed one night and thought, I should go to Samoa. He told his parents the next day, they supported him, and so he packed his bags and just left to live in Samoa for his final year of high school. I just went and just moved to Samoa with my nana um, to a village called Savalalo, which is like bang in the city. Just like lived a proper Samoan life, you know, up friggin' at four in the morning to like do the fowls, which are like the chores, the shit that you got to do to like keep the upkeep of the village in a sense and it was cool it was almost like a socialist life you know funnily enough you know you get a lot of white people trying to like eat organic veggies and like here we are with our own organic veggies right out the back we've got chickens we've got pigs and just living this super socialist life I'm really hot let's go for a swim in the ocean mean I think what I picked up more than the traditional things was just that way of life like how much simpler it can be like how much the Western sort of first world sort of just is about stress, is about the hustle, is about getting through your day and getting your next meal. Whereas over there you think it's a major struggle, but it's actually, you work harder physically, but you're just, you, you have more time. You're so much more relaxed. You're so much more happier. Like that's really what was the big culture shock was this, like I said, this socialist ethic idea that we don't need to rely on paying bills. We can just get by with each other. We're all working in this together as a village. It's a completely different life to the Samoan life here. You know, it isn't the same. New Zealand Samoan and Samoan Samoan are just two, almost two cultures now. As he got older, Scott's view of his identity and his Samoan culture began to swing. He'd spent his whole life trying to fit in and be part of a group that, at times, were happy to point out that he wasn't like them. As much as I felt unaccepted by white people, A, I always felt that was inevitable. I didn't mind so much. But B, it's not like they would go out of my way to make me feel like I didn't belong. It's just that that's how they viewed me. And it just happened to be that way. Me and my sister, our Samoan side actually did make an effort to sort of make us unwelcome in our own family. We wouldn't be, there was a point where we stopped getting invited to things, where they stopped almost talking to us. And at that point, I started to get sick of trying to please my Samoan side, like, because it just, it never was enough. And I was never Samoan enough. Trying to find balance between these two sides was rough. Samoans experience so much racism from white people, but they, they can dish it out too. You know, oh, that's so white. Oh, that's such a white thing. Oh, only white people do that. White this, white that, white... Okay, well, you know, you can't stand there and cry when you get your, you know, your ass handed to you on a racist platter and then, you know, you go and do the same thing. And like, I sort of, because I started to maybe develop a more stronger bond with my dad, who is white, I started to feel more like attacked, like, stop saying these things about white people. Stop saying that. I am half white. You have to remember that. You're living in a New Zealand. You're not living in Samoa anymore. So stop trying to be like, you know, don't come to one country and say, you need to be like this, you need to be like that. I started to get, to be honest, a bit too far. And I used to almost in that really sort of, I don't know, aggressive, entitled attitude about 
like go back to your own country and like don't come here and be like this and don't use my family for that and it, it was it's not it's an ugly color it wasn't like it's not really cool because ambivalent again you need to be a bit more ambivalent you know it's not all bad so but that was in my early 20s I feel I'm a bit more out of that now a bit more mature a bit more wiser to the world and ambivalent to the world the cool thing is I'm definitely a lot more content with um like I'm a half cast unlike my childhood I do strongly identify as Kiwi as well as Samoan so I'm like yeah I'm Samoan and this is my Samoan life and I believe in like certain things like the respect and I believe in like fouls but I'm also Kiwi and I identify with that now you know this is also my culture things like going to the beach and playing cricket at Christmas I believe in that like because I'm a Kiwi too don't be so shocked guys if anything I'm sort of I sort of love having grown up having experienced two diverse worlds almost because I just feel personally not as a Samoan or Kiwi but as me as a person of the world I just feel so much more open I don't know to things I feel because I've seen two ways of living and not just like tradition and non-tradition secular religious but also things like I've seen how the other half live the affluent and I've seen how the struggling live I feel like it's cool it's really um molded me for the better I guess it's good to like feel this way after some of the like emotions I've been through with my own identity and culture I feel like better like, I just feel like a better person for what I've seen and what I've experienced and what I've witnessed growing up and yeah growing up in a country as diverse as New Zealand it can be hard to decide whether to blend in with everyone else and downplay anything that makes you different or to emphasize what makes you unique I remember as a kid being fiercely proud about it and fiercely proud about the amount of Japanese that I was and I could very easily recite the sort of lineage pathway that sort of connected me back to Japan which was this magical place um, filled with beautiful things and lovely stories and um, it was um, something that I was very proud of. As I got older, I sort of moved, not not necessarily away from being proud, but I kind of understood on a bit of a deeper level as I got up just exactly what it meant. And I kind of swung between it meaning a lot and actually it's a very significant part of who I am to it meaning nearly nothing and I should try and minimise the amount of Japanese-ness I present and try and be as white as possible. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that's something that I'm not sure I'll ever really be able to pin down exactly. That's Jim Yoshioka. I'm an illustrator and I live in Wellington. Jim grew up in Napier and like many shy kids, she had trouble making friends, particularly in primary school. I remember struggling to make any friends at all and I'm not sure exactly what it was about me that the kids didn't like, but... Um, I was surrounded by mostly uh, Pākehā children, so lots of blue eyes, lots of blonde hair, and I was this little weird kid with dark hair and a chubby round face, and it was just like, I uh, just felt so ugly and 
weird compared to all these other kids and I didn't like the same kinds of stuff that they liked and how many years is primary school six years six years of just being left out when she was young she retreated into drawing the 90s brought with it the first wave of anime to hit New Zealand tv screens and with that Jim was able to get access to a small part of the mysterious country that was Japan it's something that I had back when I was a lonely kid and didn't have any friends, you know, drawing was there for me. And what else was there was um, cartoons on television. And it was about the time where they started playing so like Samurai Pizza Cats and Sailor Moon and Pokemon on television. And so there was all of these kind of Japanese influences that were able, that were available for me to kind of latch onto. And so I was able to incorporate that into into my drawing and um yeah so it kind of shaped it shaped what I was interested in and it shaped it towards me being able to access freely without without barriers at least a sort of sliver of Japan which previously had been so hard to come by so I was really grateful for that and I think I you know, you, you don't know because, you know, obviously I'm, I am only who I am and maybe I would have loved that stuff anyway. But because it's like, hey, here's a slice of, you know, here's a slice of your heritage um, available for you. It definitely drew me towards that stuff a lot more. Her father had been brought up with little Japanese influence. So for Jim, her grandma was a central source of Japanese culture. She knew that her grandma had sacrificed a lot of her traditions to assimilate into post-World War II New Zealand. One way Jim remembers her grandma sharing her Japanese culture when she was little was the food. We did spend a lot of time with her when we were kids, so we'd go over and hang out at her house quite regularly and um, occasionally would stay there and stuff like that. So I remember her being a, a point of fixture in our lives. Um, I, um, I guess the biggest thing is really the food. Like I remember my aunt had a, I think it was like a joint birthday wedding anniversary thing. And my grandmother was just making rice balls in the kitchen. And, um, you know, and so she was just sitting there, you know, churning them out like a machine just so that everyone, you know, she's got like 17 um, grandkids and stuff just so that we could all have a little bit of a taste of it. And they were just so good. It was like the best thing I've ever eaten was this rice ball. And um, I don't know, I just remember that being really nice. It's um, it's kind of hard to know where Japanese culture sort of ends and where she begins, if you know what I mean. Like her personality is so strong. And since she's the only Japanese grandma I have, I don't know what's Japan and what's grandma. Um She's, yeah, she's really funny. I think because she's lived in New Zealand for so long, she's still very, very Japanese, like all the way through to her core, but she's also, um, she was also quite a different person, I think, than she would have been if she'd continued to live in Japan. When Jim was 16, she finally got to visit Japan and stayed with her auntie who was living there at the time. Before going, she only had a vague sense of what it was really like. She wasn't sure what to expect. My sort of shape of Japan was very much made out of, it was very stereotypical, so the, you know, temples, 
um, the, the very distinct four seasons, um, everything that I could sort of glean out of Sailor Moon and Pokemon, um, the food. Um, yeah, I don't know, it was like this weird faraway place that felt like it was still made up out of legends in a lot of ways, you know, it's just so far away. Like any new experience, there are things about a new place that you can't foresee. I guess once once I got there, I I had more to sort of feel concrete about. So I had, you know, the the city, you know, the the place existed. Um, I, I did I do remember being, you know, being aware that that people were a lot more reserved in terms of the way that they engage and the way that they talk to other people. Uh, and then and just having to adjust my expectations about how much eye contact to expect, what kind of um, what kind of like sort of small etiquette mannerisms I needed to adopt and all of that sort of thing on the micro level, which um, which was quite stressful because um, I you know I have a lot of anxiety so I don't travel very well uh, and most of the, my time I actually spent inside, but because um, also it was winter, <laughs> so snow everywhere. But I just remember falling in love with it, just thinking that it was just the most amazing place and so lucky to be there. So special to be able to get some good Japanese practice in. And I learned so much from being able to, to experience Japan in that way. So I'm really grateful for that, for that trip. It wasn't until she was 28 that she made her second trip over. This trip was more than a sightseeing holiday for her. Um, it was the 70th anniversary of the Hiroshima bomb, and that's the area that my grandmother is from. So it's a obviously very significant event in her lifetime. Since she's not really well enough to take a 13-hour flight and then a whole lot of travel around to get there and then stand in the 8am, 30-degree temperatures, um, I, I decided that someone from the family really should go over and and mark it in her absence. And um, I was very lucky to be in the position where I was able to do something about that. So I took my younger brother, who was 20, and the pair of us went over. So the trip was a mix of going over as a tourist and going over to do family things. The whole trip was kind of defined by by these sort of intense contradictions and opposites, um, which I, which kind of became something that I noticed more and more throughout Japan. So we were either seen as completely as gaijin, as tourists, as foreigners, or we were walking around Takehara, the town that my grandmother spent World War II in, at my great-grandfather's gravestone, um, being talked to by my great uncle who doesn't speak English and um, being driven around seeing all of these spots that are um, historically important to my family and to the region that is absolutely something that you would not get as a tourist because you don't have a family grave to visit there <laughs> so that was very special and um, it was very special to be able to go home and talk to my grandmother about that um, but yeah, you know, Japan is just there's there's old and new, and there's looked after, and there's abandoned, and there's um, there's a sort of 
racing ahead technology and this sort of archaic like clinging to tradition and it's just both intensely amazing and and liberating while being somehow simultaneously constrictive like I felt so free there in some ways and so absolutely smashed to pieces in others and so it was a very emotional trip um my brother sort of he um he coaxed through it fine he was not he was not having the kind of existential crisis that I was uh, he was very um considerate for me as I was kind of like flipping out about all of these sorts of things yeah and it's both sort of very considerate and polite and respectful and there's a very hard line that is invisible that I felt like I was constantly stepping over, constantly crossing, constantly committing huge invisible um, faux pas that were embarrassing. And, you know, it was even if it's stuff like, you know, counting, counting in the wrong way or um, ordering a drink in the wrong way or um, not knowing that you need to call wait staff over and just feeling like everyone was like laughing at you a little bit. It's just, um, yeah, very full on. But at the same time, like a part of me was at home. Like it was like there's nowhere else where I can, where I can walk like this, where I can feel like this, where I can look around and see faces that remind me of my family and feel like there's a part of me that's here, that's home here. Over here, so much Japanese, like have that just to be the air around me. It's um it's something that I desperately crave to get back to, even with all of the um, complications and difficult um, elements to it. It's still somewhere that I desperately want to be. Jim has been able to connect continuously back to her Japanese roots through her art. Her heritage both inspires and informs her work. Her comments include autobiographical works which talk directly about her relationship with Japan and her Japanese identity. She had started using her grandma's last name as a pseudonym for her work for many years. Eventually, she made it official. When I adopted it as my artist name, it was pretty much purely because I wanted people to be able to um, sort of see the way that I drew and understood that I had a cultural point of authority to be able to include the, the things that I did within my artwork. So it was a conscious decision to kind of put some more authenticity behind the work that I was doing, which sounds horrible, but it was exhausting to have to be um, confronted often about whether or not I was allowed to um, draw kimono or um, draw Japanese girls or draw in a Japanese-influenced style. And I wanted to be able to say, hey, this is me in a really easy way. Like, this is a part of who I am. Um, I'm not just some posturing person this is you know I'm, I'm touching on these things because it's important to me yeah so it was about the point where I started to really want to explore those themes more heavily and um, it was yeah it was the easiest thing that I could think to to sort of yeah build build myself in that direction I guess and and start to shape myself to you know to want to commit more to to um to, to um, exploring the Japanese part of my heritage and, um, and what that really meant, especially for my grandmother coming over here and all of that sort of stuff. 
Identity is not static. It's changing all the time. For Jim, this is how she sees her Japanese identity evolving in the future. Well, I guess it's it's a mystery, really. I've got no real idea. I guess that the thing I'm excited about is that it will evolve. I'm hoping that it will deepen and that it will become something that is more important to me in my life. You know, I don't see it ever getting weaker because it's something that I am that's always going to be a part of me but it would be nice to have it be more and I think that and I mean I'm working on that that's you know by reading more by um by learning more about the history about engaging more with Japanese stuff wherever I can find it I guess the thing with the with the recent trips to Japan is it's kind of cracked through my block that I have to be in Japan in order to be able to be Japanese like it's okay for me to do that here and in some ways it'll probably be safer and easier for me to explore being Japanese away from Japan because I won't have to deal as much with the um, with the conflicts of being white over there um, but I hope that in the future I will get to live there for an extended period of time I'm just not sure quite how I'll be able to do that um, there's, I'm, I'm very happy in my current job and there's not terribly many options outside of teaching English for foreigners over there. It's, you know, it's something that I'll be looking out for the opportunities to get back there. It's, yeah, I think the best I can do. In Jim's comics, she tells stories about her family and of her own journey of being a Japanese New Zealander. They're beautifully done. They are something that I, a non-Japanese, non-mixed person, can connect with. Jim sums it up pretty nicely. I guess I, what I really want to highlight with my work is that is the experience of being mixed with other ethnicities. So it's this idea that that it's not just one or another. There's no kind of purity necessarily like it's okay to be a contradiction and it's okay to have multiple feelings in one day about who it is that you are and where you come from it's not necessarily going to be a straight line for everybody I I struggle to answer this one a little because I mostly I make them for myself because this is something that is stuck inside me and I need it to be outside where at least then I can look at it and kind of understand it myself a little better so I guess the the people who approach my work and and look at it I hope that they sort of see that about it that it's not a finished thing this isn't the sort of the be all and end all of mixed Japanese identity this is my personal experience with it and my personal way of expressing it and it's not going to be the same for probably anyone else in the entire world because we're all different and we all have our own experience that builds us up. This has been Feeling Comfortable in Your Own Skin on Can You Repeat That? Music for this episode was provided by the Rope River Blues Band, Pottington Bear, Lobo Loco and Josh Woodward. Thank you to our interviewees for sharing their experiences with us and friends who gave their support and feedback about this episode. Today's show has been hosted and written by Novia Ning. And that was the pilot episode for Can You Repeat That?